I ask, the God of our master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. Your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what it is he is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for Christians. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him, endless energy, boundless strength. That prayer of Paul is in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's written for the church. Which means that Christian or not, Paul thinks that there is a decent chance that you don't really understand Jesus. That there is a decent chance that you don't actually know who you are in Christ, all that God has to offer you in Christ. And that there's a decent chance that without really coming to understand that, that you will miss something vital, which is not just who Jesus is, but who you really are and what your life is really supposed to be about. And so he's praying for us, which is nice, I think. It's nice to know that the people who wrote the Bible are rooting for you and rooting for me, uh, that maybe we'll understand the things that they had to say and maybe that we'll start to actually live the lives that we say that we want to live. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about identity in Christ. We're going to spend four weeks focusing on four words from Ephesians 1. There are a lot more words in Ephesians 1. We're just focusing on four of them. <laughs> Chosen, adopted, redeemed, beloved. These are carbs for the spiritual journey. And I want you to say this with me, right? They, they're fuel. They will keep you going when you feel weak. All right, so say this with me. In Christ. With like with feeling though. In Christ, in Christ I, am I am adopted. I am chosen. I am redeemed. I am beloved. That is true. We're going to spend the next four weeks thinking about the truth of those words. Really trying to just take them into ourselves and move ourselves deeper and deeper into this new identity we've got in Christ. And today we're talking about the word Chosen. That you have been chosen. You have been chosen by the God of the universe for a unique, specific purpose that only you can fulfill. It's our mission at this community to help you to figure out what that is, equipping you to live shaped by the gospel. You have been chosen for a purpose. And if you want, turn with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we were just going to read verse 4 today, but then I thought we'd read 3 and 4 because it's good stuff. But we're spending most of our time on verse 4. I'm going to read it in one translation, and then I'm going to read it again in a second. So this is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He had settled on us as the focus on his, of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. And now again in another translation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, before him in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
One of the, I think, truly obnoxious things about being an adult in America in our time is that you have to assemble all of your own furniture. <laughs> and this may not annoy some of you in the same way that it annoys me, but I remember a time, and some of you will remember a time when you could go to a store and buy furniture, and they would give you furniture. But now when you go to a store and you try to buy furniture, they give you a box with a picture of furniture that you would like. And inside the box rattles filled with hardware and wrenches and something that looks like wood but is not wood. And they say to you, some assembly required, good luck to you. And then they take your money. And you go home and you try to figure it out. And again, some of you love Ikea and you love Target and I get it, but I do not. It just, it drives me nuts. And I remember a time when I was in college and five of us took four hours to try and assemble a desk slash several other things that had Swedish names. And it took a long time. Admittedly, only two of us actually were doing the work. Two people really sat on the bed and heckled. And the girl we were working for was primarily emptying boxes. And so it was her boyfriend and I doing most of the work figuring out this thing. And the, the instructions were good. And we were not that great. And there were, there were things about it that just weren't intuitive, like screws that you hit with a hammer, which seems strange, and, <laughs> and bolts that turned the wrong direction, and brackets that also had Swedish names and had to be inserted in strange ways. But eventually we had something that looked a little bit like the picture on the box. It just sort of leaned noticeably. <laughs> and it, whenever you put weight on it, it would rattle. And uh, there were, there were a variety of pieces that were left over um, that just seemed unessential. You know, bolts and brackets and some of the strange things that had angles, and I couldn't really tell you what they were. And you would think that all of this would concern me. But remember, it wasn't my desk. And it wasn't my girlfriend. So I'm sure those were just spare parts. Paul kicks off this letter to the Ephesians with a really clear statement. You are not spare parts. You are not a spare part. God has chosen you. Long before you were ever born, God knew that you were coming and God was really excited about it. God has a plan for your life. You can bank on that. You can believe that. You can you know, trust yourself to him. Now there are other worldviews out there that would disagree with this. They would say that there is no God and that you were not made and there the idea that there's meaning and purpose and value in life, that's really an illusion. That's a trick of biology. We're all here as a result of random chance. And I don't find that story of the world compelling. That's the truth. This is just me personally. I actually think that's a really good argument for why there must be some kind of God. There are many of my friends, religious or not, still believe that their lives have meaning and purpose. Whether or not that's consistent with their beliefs, they just, deep down, they, they believe that. And it's my friends who are suicidal or deeply depressed who believe that life has no meaning or value or purpose. And a worldview that looks at my suicidal friends and says, you guys are viewing the world accurately, that seems wrong. A worldview that looks at people who are trying to live lives of meaning and purpose, regardless of the God that they believe in, and says, you're living a lie, that seems wrong to me. It's just me personally. The Christian story tells this remarkable story of good news. There is a God who made everything, who made you. There is a God who loves you, who chose you, long before the foundations of the world, this verse says. Chosenness involves design. And I know that that's a, a word that in our time can mean different things to different people. Um, so I'm going to say a couple of things, bear with me. The Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is not a history textbook. It's the Bible. 
It is interested in things that those other disciplines are interested in, but not in the same way. And thank God, because I'd much rather read the Bible than a science textbook most of the time. And it's, it's nice to know, actually, that the Bible is not nearly as concerned with, say, the exact mechanism by which the world came into existence as it is with why, for what purpose. And this isn't to say that you can't believe in the theory of evolution or that you have to believe in the theory of evolution. It's just that that's not the most relevant question to this story. The question is, why did God make the world? For what purpose did God make you and me? See, the story of the Bible tells us that in the very beginning, there was this God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Long before anything else existed. And he was just so filled with love, so overflowing with love, that he made all that is. Because he wanted more things to love, more people to love. So as God was making the foundations of the world, God had this space in creation for humanity. And he made these two people. But even as he was making those two people, he was making room in his story for your story. That God knew that at some point he would make you. In fact, he was making you even then. He knew what color your hair would be. He knew what your laugh would sound like. He knew that you would secretly hate pizza and that you would live a lie trying to cover that up. <laughs> I know you're here. He knew, he knew that you are secretly an introvert or an extrovert. He knew you would love details or hate mornings. He knew you would be a dog person or maybe a fish person. There are, they, they exist. And that's the thing. There's a psalm that actually says, he knit you together in your mother's womb. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. You are not a spare part. You have no spare parts. God made each and every piece of you with great intentionality, like a sculptor that spends way too much time looking at a piece of rock and thinking which part matters and which part doesn't matter so much. And I know sometimes it's really hard to believe that God made you and really hard to believe that God made you with intentionality. Because sometimes when we look at the mirror, you think, like 10 more minutes? Couldn't you have spent 10 more minutes thinking about this? Like you could have done a lot better work with me. And sometimes really we look at ourselves and we look at our hair, we look at our bodies and we think, you know, I really wish it looked like somebody else. I really wish I didn't have this or I did have this. And it's not just true of our bodies. It's, it's true of our personalities. It's true of our emotional lives. It's true of our past and our present and our future. We look at so much of who we are and we go, this really, this is not the best it's hard to believe that there's somebody designing, somebody who's chosen, somebody who would ever pick someone like me. And in many ways, some of those rough spots in our lives, some of those great spots in our lives, that like the bumps on the edge of a key, the peaks and the valleys on a key, they're really important. Really everything about a key is really important because there's something about those peaks and those valleys and the unique combination of all of them together that allows them to unlock something. God has so designed you God has so uniquely prepared a purpose for you that you unlock something in the kingdom of God, that you are for something in this great grand story of redemption and creation. Chosenness involves design. God designed you. And there is an obvious problem, I think, beyond just the fact that we struggle to, to believe that we are lovable. It's that when you look at the world, everything just seems to be sort of bent broken, crooked. Like there was somebody maybe who was trying at first and then gave up somewhere in the middle of the process. If you, if you look at war, just the story of war in human history, nobody thinks it's a good idea. We all think it's terrible, and yet we keep having wars, and they keep getting bigger and bloodier, and 
In the last century, there were two of them that involved the entire world. And we keep building weapons that we think are a terrible idea that could destroy not merely our enemies, but also everyone. And yet we keep building more of them, even though we have far too many already. Something sick and twisted in the heart of humanity. Something sick and twisted in the way that the world works. We're Children starve, and plenty of people have enough to eat. We're, there are people who die in tsunamis, even though there are flood warning systems. The countries are too poor to afford them. Something really gross in me that I know the kind of person I want to be and the kind of person I want to become. But little by little, I find myself living a very different life. And maybe you have trouble recognizing that in yourself. It's really easy to recognize it in other people. That person at the grocery store who has 16 items. You should know better. There was a sign. The person who cuts you off in traffic and you're thinking, you should know better. The person in your family who you think, how, did, how are you still doing this? How do you not know better than this? And deep down, it's like we all feel like there is some kind of design, but that everything in the world is just slightly off. Like it should be different than this. Deep in our hearts, we all imagine a better world, a more perfect world, even though we've never seen a better one than the one that we have. Deep in our hearts, we are longing for something the Bible calls the kingdom of God. And long before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be a part of it. To be holy and blameless before him in love. The Bible tells the story that we were once in that space and we wrecked it. The word for that kind of tilt in humanity, the crookedness that we see in the world around us, we call that sin with a capital S. The reality that the world is badly broken, that it does not work the way that it's supposed to, that we are not living according to our design. Sin is fundamentally opposed to God's designs for the world. Sin is fundamentally opposed to God's chosenness of us. Sin is trying to destroy God's choice and God's image in us. At the very beginning, there were these two people, and they knew exactly what God had called them to do, exactly what their purpose was, and they ignored it. And they broke the world, and they broke humanity. They were so central to God's projects and God's plan for creation that they destroyed everything. And ever since then, we've been living in this world that seems bent and broken and fighting this pattern that seems to exist somewhere inside of us where we long for a better world, but we keep participating in this one. Things don't function well when they ignore their design. You mix up jumper cables, you can do some real damage. A goldfish will not live long in a pine tree. A shoulder that's out of joint, just a little bit out of joint, is excruciatingly painful. It doesn't even look like it's a problem, but it's excruciatingly painful. The world is fundamentally out of joint. That's sin. And so this statement, right, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, that just seems fundamentally untrue. But. Jesus has a great but. 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 God in Jesus Christ did something fantastic. But God did something in Jesus Christ truly remarkable. He chose us anyway. See, before the foundations of the world, long before anything ever went wrong, long before you were the kind of person who did some of the things in the past that you know you shouldn't have done, who have lived the kind of life that you know you probably shouldn't have lived, God picked you anyway. God chose you a long, long time ago in the midst of your failure and your flaw and your sin, another book of the Bible, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's this remarkable statement that God makes in Jesus Christ. I love you too much to let you live in this broken world. 
I love you too much to let you be this broken and twisted and crooked. I'm going to set things right. I'm going to fix it all in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes and lives and dies for us. And there's this remarkable thing that happens. Not only has God made it really clear that he's chosen us, but he gives us the opportunity to live the way we were always designed to live, to become the people we were always designed to be, to live into the image of God in Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, in Christ, we heard it twice in two verses. It's used a lot in Ephesians, dozens of times, maybe hundreds, depending on how you want to count. And there's only six chapters. Constantly, Paul is saying that in Christ, something truly remarkable has happened for us. Not merely because something great happened in Jesus a long time ago, but that we have the opportunity to be in Christ. Um, there's a circle in one of the slides, and it's not really that exciting to look at, but this is the circle. And it might be hard for you to imagine um, that it might be hard for you to imagine that, that God has chosen you. Maybe that God would choose other people. But that God would choose you seems hard to believe, or that you could be holy and blameless. Sounds just ludicrous, that you could live some kind of perfect, designed life. And that God would love you seems hard to believe. But if we imagine that this circle is just Jesus, it's pretty easy to believe that, that God loves Jesus. It's easy to believe that Jesus is holy and blameless and that Jesus has lived this perfect kind of life. There's something about the life of Jesus that looks like it just had this design and purpose. There was a, a real value to who Jesus was. That God clearly loves Jesus, that God could choose Jesus before the world began. That's easy to believe. What Paul is saying is that in Christ, you and I can experience that same kind of life. That we can live inside of that circle. And that what is true for the humanity of Christ can be true for the humanity of you and the humanity of me. That you are as loved by God as Jesus is in Christ. That you are holy and blameless. Not because you're so remarkable but because you're in Christ. That you are chosen long before you ever even existed in Christ. And the Christian life is really about learning to live inside of that circle and nowhere else. To really unite ourselves with the story of Jesus Christ. To become the kind of people he's called us to be and to live the life that he's designed for us. That's what it means to live in Christ. Now, for some folks, you can blank that out. For some folks, this is um, tricky. Uh, the word chosen really makes people uncomfortable. And it makes people uncomfortable because uh, folks talk about things like the doctrine of election or predestination. And if this doesn't bother you, just ignore the next minute of what I'm about to say. But if it does, there's something about God making choices that makes people very uncomfortable. Because if God chooses things, and God is infinite, and God is powerful, then God's choices seem like they will always beat my choices. That my choices, which are small and human and frail will never beat this infinite God. So what choice is there really left for me if God chooses me? And some folks really land in a bunch of different places with this. And all I'm going to say is that the Bible is really clear. That God chooses people. That God makes choices. That God is an agent in history. That God is working in the world and in your story. And slowly and steadily is moving things toward his desired end. That God has a plan for your lives. That God has picked you. This is clear. And also that you get to make choices. And that God loves us enough to really let us make choices. Bad ones, even. And he gets mad at us when we make bad ones. And he praises us when we make good ones. The biblical story is one where you and I get to make good choices and bad choices. But that God has chosen us. That this is available to any and all people. That God has chosen humanity. And this is a statement he makes in Christ. It's clear. 
The question is whether we'll respond to God's choice, whether we're going to choose to inhabit this space that he's made for us in Christ, to be holy and blameless before him in love. And we can never say to God, I choose you first. We can only say, I choose you also, or I choose you back. We can never say to God, I love you first. We can only ever say, I, I love you too. I love you also. My children will never beat me to saying, I love you. I loved my children long before they were born. I told my children long before they were born. I told my children after they were born, and they didn't understand what language was. I taught my children the words, I love you. I taught them to say it to me after I tell them that I love you. That doesn't mean I don't love hearing it. It doesn't mean they don't have a choice. But they'll never get to say it first. I love my children long before they ever loved me. This is the story for you and I in Jesus Christ. And we can live this remarkable life that he's given to us. There's this sort of invitation that's built into chosenness or a, a calling that's built into chosenness. The question is whether or not we'll respond to that, whether or not we're going to live as though Jesus doesn't matter or live in Christ and experience all that he has for us, all that Paul is praying that we'll experience in Christ. There's a guy named Frederick Buechner who wrote a little theological dictionary a long time ago. And uh, the quote's um, actually on the slides, but uh, he said this about vocation. It comes from the Latin vocare, to call. It means the work a man or woman is called to by God. There are different kinds of voices calling you to all different kinds of work, and the problem is to figure out which is the voice of God, rather than society, say, or superego, or self-interest. By and large, a good rule for finding this out is the kind of work that God usually calls you to do is the kind of work, A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place where God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Friends, God is calling us. Calling us out into a world that is so hungry. Into a world that is missing something. That is just ever so slightly bent and broken. And the more you pay attention to the Christian story, the more you begin to realize that you're actually one of the pieces that's missing. That you're actually uniquely designed to do something in the world. That, that God has a plan for you and a call on your life. That he's chosen you to be holy and blameless before him in love. Holy and blameless, these are moral words throughout the Bible. They, they mean a particular kind of life that we're going to lead. And the Bible is a great design manual on the human existence. What does it look like to lead a flourishing life? And what does it look like when you don't? The Bible is good at answering that question. But words like holy and blameless also refer to a God who is fundamentally different and a people who follow him who need to be fundamentally different from the world we live in. Blameless is a word that doesn't just refer to a moral kind of integrity, but just a total life kind of integrity, a wholeness before God. People who really understand what they were made for, what they were designed to do, and who live into that. And that's a really powerful witness in a world where people tend to choose their identities almost by default. Most of the time, they don't even really choose their identities. We sort of stumble into who we are. When it comes to following Jesus, we want to figure out what exactly has God designed me to do? What has he designed you to do? Where, where is the place where my deep gladness lines up with the world's deep hunger? And sometimes that, that's a calling away from a walking away from a life that doesn't look holy and blameless, and a walking away from a life of sin and brokenness into a life in Christ. 
Sometimes it means walking away from a fake version of yourself or the version of yourself that your parents always wanted to see or uh, that some pastor in your life always wanted to see or that some boss in your life really believes that, that you can inhabit. There's this life coach that I married. Um, she's very wise. <laughs> and uh, a few years back, she was working with somebody. And uh, his, well, he, he was an investment banker in his mid-30s. And he was really doing well, an extremely successful person. Six-figure salary, bonuses that maybe push you into a seven-figure annual salary. I don't understand that kind of life. <laughs> doing real well for himself and good at it, climbing the ladder. And restless, you know, that just kind of feeling like I'm, some of the things that I'm good at, I'm good at, but there are these other parts of me that just aren't being used. Like maybe I'm in the wrong spot, like it's a key, you're trying to jam into the wrong lock, you know, and... And he met with my wife, and they sat and chatted, and she's good at what she does. And she asked the same questions that she often does, and so this is, I'm just ruining everything she does as a business. She asked questions like, so what, what do you really value in life? What are the things that are really important to you? And what are some things that you're really good at, that you, really, that you care about, that you enjoy doing, that give you energy in life, and what are the things that often take it away from you? What are some obstacles between you living the life that you think you want and the life you kind of have right now. And what's a concrete plan, concrete plan to get past those obstacles? What's a concrete plan you have to, I don't know, to become the person that you deep down really want to be, to live that life of meaning and purpose, to get unstuck? And they spent a lot of time together, and he decided to quit his job and move to Thailand. And she came home one day and said, so he's quitting his job, but he's moving to Thailand. And I became vicariously very anxious. Just, oh, that's a bad idea. And I was like, this isn't even my job or my life. I, like, he's probably got a decent savings account, but I was suddenly very uncomfortable for this man. And I said, so what's he gonna do? She's like, he doesn't really know yet. He just know that he really, that that's where he's felt like a long time he needs to be. And I, I thought, man, I'm so glad I'm not a life coach. I don't want to be a part of that. And yet, at the same time, I'm so excited this guy is, is going to live this life. And it's many, many years later. And that guy does not look back with regret on the decisions he's made. He's adopted a kid. He's, he's actually very, very happy. Because he's living the life that he's designed to live. He's, he's figured out the place where his deep gladness lines up with, with God's, you know, God's calling and, and with the world's deep hunger. Sometimes it's a calling away from. And some of you may be stuck in situations and realizing that maybe you're not really living your best life. Or you, maybe you've stumbled into a life that, that looks pretty good to a lot of people and, and makes a lot of people really happy and you're dating somebody and, and it's just kind of hard to walk away from. Or you're doing something that's just kind of hard to walk away from. You're living somewhere that's just kind of hard to walk away from. It could be that living a life, you're really embracing your chosenness, your calling, your design, means making some hard choices and walking away. might be good to meet with a counselor, chat with a pastor, test some of these things out in community with a small group or a life coach, any number of people in your life who care about you, who can speak truth into your life. What are you good at? What are you bad at? Invite these people in. Read the Bible a lot. Pray a lot. But sometimes following your calling doesn't mean walking away from the life that you're in. Sometimes it means walking away from kind of temptations to leave your calling. There are sometimes we're actually exactly where God wants us to be. We just haven't been that intentional about it. We haven't really thought that much about it. There's a guy uh, who 
wrote another book. Um, it's called Let Your Life Speak. His name is Parker Palmer. And he tells this story of being invited to be the president of a university. He was one of the professors there. He said, I was quite certain that this was the job for me. And so as the custom among Christian people that he knew, I called a dozen friends into something he calls a clearness committee. Clearness committee. It's a room where people can come and ask questions. It's all they get to do. They can't give advice. Can't tell you what they think you need to do. They just ask questions. Looking back, of course, it's clear to me, my real intent in convening this group was not to discern anything, but to brag about being offered a job I had already decided to accept. And for a while, the questions were easy. But halfway through the process, someone asked a very hard question that sounded easy. What would you most like about being president? Well, I wouldn't like to have to give up my writing and my teaching. Um, I wouldn't really like the politics of presidency. I wouldn't want to glad-hand people I don't really respect in order to get their money. I wouldn't like... Yeah, may I remind you, I asked you what you would like. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm, I'm getting to that. I just, um, I wouldn't like having to give up my summer vacations. I wouldn't like having to wear a suit all the time. I wouldn't like... Once again, the questioner asks, so what would you like about being president? Well, I said in the smallest voice possible, I guess what I'd most like is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. I was sitting with seasoned Christians who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. They did not laugh, but all went into a serious silence. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and cracked me open. Parker, he said, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? It's quite possible that God has called you to be in exactly the situation that you're in right now, and it's just hard right now. Some of the restlessness you feel is just realizing that God has called you to the space and that it's not an easy place to be. But I can guarantee you this, God is calling you. Because God has chosen you. God has designed you. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. No part of your story is a spare part. He can redeem it. You can do remarkable things in it, and this is getting us into some of the words we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But God is able to use every bump and valley in your story like a key to unlock something really remarkable for the kingdom of God. And the deeper you go into Christ, the more you will find he will use you for the life of purpose that you've always wanted. God has chosen you before the foundations of the world in Christ to be holy and blameless in love. God has chosen you for a purpose. Do you know what it is? Are you living into that today? God has chosen you, my friends. Would you pray with me?